Welcome to another exciting episode of Full Casting Crew, where we take a film and just... Um, um, anyway, we, this, is the best podcast ever created. Why, my horse with no name joke in our last unicorn episode alone is better than the movie itself. And I can't wait till the money starts rolling in, <laughs> which it is definitely going to do once we start pulling those Joe Rogan numbers. God, I wish I was him. Not just for the listenership, but the biceps. Oh, why can't I have Joe Rogan's biceps? Oh, then Rihanna would answer my tweets. Oh, Rihanna. Oh. Anyway, grab some snacks, maybe some chips, pretzels, nachos, otters noses, bibimbap, cheesecake, turducken, and a deep-fried mastodon, along with a barrel of wine and a white claw back, and give it a listen. And if you don't, God help you, you are going to be in a fucking world of hurt. I'm going to come over there and cram this podcast down your ear hole. I'm going to make you wish you never got Bluetooth headphones. I'm going to shave your goddamn cat. Enjoy. Chris, that was an excellent take on The Seven Deadly Sins, a brilliant way to reference the movie we're here to discuss today, which is David Fincher's 1995 vastly influential film, Seven. Yes. Which we are doing because a super listener suggested that we do this. Avid listeners will recall that we went down the IMDb page of the onset medic, whose name I don't have Shoot at me. my... But you know what I was thinking anyway? If I was him and we started talking about him on the podcast, I'd be like, I enjoy the podcast, but I don't know that I want to be like discussed. <laughs> with you know it. what I mean? Like, I don't know if I want to be <laughs> talked about. So he knows who he is. We know who he is. We thank him. We're doing this because he worked on Seven. And but certainly, yes, Jeffrey Stevens, you uh, don't have to worry. We will not discuss will not you discuss or give your name you out on the podcast. It was suggested by Jeffrey Stevens, who yes. was the medic. On the set, set medic, yes. Set medic, Brad Pitt famously had an injury during a uh, chase scene. He smashed through a windshield and actually hurt himself pretty bad. You know, he really muscled through and finished the take. And it was only after they called cut that he showed the director like his hand severed arm, off, severed arms, <laughs> yeah. and they didn't even use that take. But that's something that Jeffrey our, probably he probably dressed that wound exactly. Turned out to be a good choice that our on-set medic exactly and fan probably uh, handled Brad Pitt's blood. You know, we don't know how much action. He had on Chud too, but he certainly had some on this. When I did see it, I actually went to a movie theater that mm -hmm. had two movies playing, and I actually went on a date to go see Devil in a Blue Dress, which was sure. out at the same time. The Walter Mosley adaptation. With Denzel Washington. Great movie. I mean, I wouldn't know because I didn't see it because I actually walked into the wrong thing. And when and actually the woman that I was going to see, she said specifically, like, that seven thing, I don't want to see I that. I don't want to go anywhere scared. near that. Wanna... So movie opens, you see this, you know, African-American man from behind in a kitchen. Like, sure. You're like, we're in the right place. And then, you know, so it's going. And then at one point it turns out, it's like, oh, Morgan Freeman's in this too. Uh, and then it was, I, you know, pretty soon, I think once the, uh, the horrific title sequence, the title sequence with the <laughs> That's Trent Reznor remix, out. but we decided to stay and loved it. I'm a big fan of Zodiac, as you right. know, you know, I liked seven when it came out, but the DVD includes four count them Four commentaries about wow. the movie with the producer, Mike DeLuca, the director, the cinematographer, another one with Fincher, Brad Pitt, and Morgan Freeman, a third one with the sound department, which is the most fascinating one. And I'm not saying that just to suck up to Matt the engineer so that he <laughs> makes my tones sound dulcet, but man, the audio design is 
fascinating in this movie. And one, I think, with the screenwriter, Andrew Kevin Walker. And my appreciation for the movie grew as I listened more and more to the people involved in the making of it talk about the care with which it was assembled. What did Andrew Kevin Walker have to say? You know, and he's interesting because, you know, he's written a few movies, but he's certainly not a guy that I was familiar with. Right. He said that the movie came out of his experience living in New York, probably in the late 80s and early 90s when it was a hellhole. And the seven you know, sins not, were- not that much different, man. Ramping on every bit, corner. Uh, a little bit more expensive, but other than that- So uh, yeah, he says it came out of his experience living in New York and sort of hating himself and hating everyone. You know, it's an early New Line cinema movie, which sort of a 90s alternative cinema plays right. funded by a major studio that was kind of trying to do different types of material that probably wouldn't have been greenlit at a major studio. And this was certainly a movie that was challenging for its time. I mean, it's still challenging. It's still a movie that doesn't play by the quote unquote rules of the genre. And yet is very conscious of the rules. Like in some ways it almost yeah. looks like it might be something you expect and then uh, upends it in, in certain ways. And I think that's part of the reason why I was interested to hear what Andrew Kevin Walker had to say, because like you said, this movie was so influential in terms of the tone, in terms of really being a breakout for David Fincher and the look. You know, you said you hadn't seen it since 1995, but you I'm sure have seen countless <laughs> knockoffs oh, in the yes. sense that like both the aesthetic, but also the fascination with serial killers, yep. this doorness that became so associated with the mm-hmm. night. Like it is, it's almost a joke mm-hmm. how 90s this movie is in the best way possible mm-hmm. like you know in the in amount its nihilistic of nihilistic detachment it's exactly yeah. yes but a kind of nobility underneath mm-hmm. that i think that nihilism is trying to shed a light on in uh Brad Pitt's Mm-hmm. clothes, Williamsburg before there was a Williamsburg, or at least, you know, before it meant what it means now. So many things about it became indelible. And I think people wouldn't almost even realize that this is the root of all of it. I would have thought that Andrew Kevin Walker would have been such a genius or had other sort of insights. But but I think it was one of those things, again, not to take anything away from him, but so many influences kind of meeting in one place to sort of make this classic film. And, and it's also challenging, not only in the ways that it's meant to be, but I think some of the things now, and this is also why the 90s, sometimes people look back on it now uncharitably. Yeah. Like sort of politically don't look the same way. Mm-hmm. Like the women in this do not right. come across well, do not end well. You mean the ones that aren't dead? Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think all of them are so. as far as I can tell. Uh, but I, th- I think that's certainly not that the film is sexist. Right? It's just mm-hmm. more that, you know, times do change. Yeah. There are some things about it that don't age as well. But I think the core of it is still uh, actually quite romantic and beautiful. And it's physically beautiful to look at. So Fincher had famously and tragically had a horrible experience directing Alien 3 uh, as a replacement director. And it just was a production that is one of the most fabled, troubled productions. He has a line in one of the commentary tracks where he's like, at the time that they approached me to do seven, I think I would have rather had a terminal disease than direct (laughs) another feature film. But DeLuca sent him the script. And it turns out that DeLuca sent him an earlier version of the script. The version that they sent Fincher was what became known as the head in the box version. So Fincher calls DeLuca and says, hey, I love it. It's great. And through their conversation, it suddenly becomes clear that Fincher is talking about a version of the script that DeLuca knows is not the one that his business partners want to put into production. Yeah. And Fincher says, well, I don't know what to tell you. I mean, that's how the movie should go. That's the movie I want to make. Exactly. And Lucas says, I agree with you. So as long as you stick to that line and I can report up that you believe that and I believe that, I think Brad believes that because I think he was already attached. Yes. 
and let's see if we can get this through. I was reading an interview with Andrew Kevin Walker, and he was talking about, you know, a lot of the notes and those changes were both uh, from the studio, but there was a director who had been attached. Right. Uh, Jeremiah Chechik. Chechik, yeah. Uh, who I think he's another music video director. Like is that right? Oh, I, I saw think that so. he wrote uh, Christmas, he, he directed Christmas Vacation. Sure. Uh, which I guess has a song in it, so that might count. Very similar film. Uh, but I believe he also seven. did like Benny and June. But he had mandated some of those changes. I don't know if he was taking the studio's line or if maybe they hired him because he happened to have a similar aesthetic, but he also found it too dark and really wanted it, you know, again, no no offense to him, but I think taken back in a more conventional buddy cop direction. Fincher famously told Morgan Freeman and Brad Pitt, this isn't a top line movie for your career. It's a footnote movie, but I mean that in the best sense of the word. It's not the movie that's going to define your acting career. But if we all do our jobs, I think it's a movie that you're going to look back and be really proud that you were associated with. Certainly one of the more moving Morgan Freeman performances and and one of the more complete and full ones that he often gets a chance to do. Mm -hmm. I really zeroed in you know, the four times I ended up watching the movie. Really, really appreciate his utter skill. And of course, you know, I'm a Brad guy. You know, we've talked about this. This is young Brad, 95 Brad. This is Brad coming off hunk boy, golden hair, flaxen seed, man candy. Legends of the Fall. Legends of the Fall, where, you know, he's shirtless and... And made to look like Fabio. Like, he has the same hair. If we have any younger listeners, they might not remember. Fabio in the 90s was a very famous romance cover model. So I think that for Brad, this was about getting away from that. You mentioned the clothes, which I always think are really interesting and funny. You have the Morgan Freeman character is so well-dressed and dignified and takes time and attention with his suspenders and his tie. And you have Brad in these hilariously, not just 90s, but purposefully bad clothes. Yes. Part of the characterization. The Right. I uh, read that Brad Pitt was like, yeah, I, just, I wanted him to have bad fashion sense. And I was like, I yeah. don't know. Maybe it's because you're so handsome. Like everything on him just looks like, hey, he's like <laughs> hip. He can make it work. He can make it work. But he's got some really baggy <laughs> shirts and suits. Um, I think it was Brad that brought in the funny concept of the pre-tied ties on the hanger. He pulls a hanger out of his closet and has six ties pre-looped and tied, and he selects one and puts it over his neck and just has to knot it. I mean, doesn't have to Jason, tie it. unless he went back in time to my first communion, he is not the first guy Not to the first do guy that. to do that? So, yeah, you have a genre movie, a neo-noir film in the sense that, as you mentioned, it's aware of and subverting the conventions of the genre. And it's kind of crazy still to think of a movie that has the twists this one has, and we can name them because it's 2019, Chris. I don't think anyone is going to really be upset with us for spoiling 1995. (laughs) But you have this hunt for a diabolical mastermind serial killer who just shows up in the precinct and turns himself in. And turns out to be Christopher Plummer. (laughs) (laughs) Christopher Plummer in our cameo that we didn't know he was. How many podcasts have to struggle with the spacey thing now? Yeah. He is incredible in the movie. This is four years after Silence of the Lambs, which I believe we also did on the podcast, Chris. Yes, I think. Find it wherever fine podcasts are sold. Yeah, you can check that out. Or give it away for free. Um, Four years after, and Mike DeLuca at New Line said that part of the reason why this movie was quote-unquote fast-tracked, because it was in development, I believe, going back to around the same time, Silence came out. It was fast-tracked, and it took four years. But ah. the fact that it only, quote-unquote, took four years was because Silence <laughs> of the Lambs fast. had been such a big hit. But to do a take on that four years after something so defining as Anthony Hopkins' performance as Hannibal Lecter seems kind of crazy, yet this is a very distinct and unique and as memorable a psycho. It really uses Kevin Spacey 
Scorsese's flat affect. Because I remember the first time yeah. that I sort of noticed him in something was the Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross film. You have Al Pacino, Jack Lemmon, all of these guys like acting up a storm. Yes. And then in the middle, you have this balding guy with glasses, mm-hmm. like office manager type. And yet he was still so magnetic and interesting despite mm-hmm barely raising his voice yes. and stuff like that. There is something fascinating about the way he is able to underplay things without it becoming dead because this, this is one yeah. of those things. And especially there are so many of these um, uh, sociopathic yeah. parts where sometimes you detach yourself, but you detach yourself so much that it doesn't look like there's anything going on. Right. It becomes robotic. But we have to talk a little bit about a couple of the major influences on Fincher in making the film because this is a momentous day on the podcast. It's been coming for many, many weeks. Today is the day we are going to be able to play the clip from Malice, the much discussed (laughs) Harold Becker, Alec Baldwin, George C. Scott starring. (laughs) Nicole Kidman. Nicole Kidman. Neo-noir. It's a neo-noir. That's why it was influential. Penned by. Babalu Mandel. No. Although it might as well have been, honestly, for as overstuffed and insanely over the top as this movie is. No, who was he? Because I know he came up recently. Sorkin. That's it. I didn't know that was yes. a Sorkin joint. Yes. Malice was cited so many times by Fincher. And I was like, wow. Okay. We've talked about, I don't know how it keeps coming up. So I had to go down the wormhole. I didn't watch it, but I read some stuff about it. I watched some clips from it and all the articles about Malice just cite how there are like three different movies all stuffed into one movie. Uh huh. You've got the medical thriller side. You have the courtroom thriller. You have the hunt for a ser- supposed serial killer, which is just abandoned as the movie develops. Funny gotcha. Re- we, yeah. One funny review said, "You know, a movie's overstuffed when it can just abandon an entire <laughs> impassioned hunt for a serial killer." It's one thing to abandon the hunt for your keys. It's another thing to abandon the hunt for <laughs> oh a serial my God. killer. So finally, because it's an influence, we get to play. Do I have a god complex? Doctor Kessler says yes. Which makes me wonder if this lawyer has any idea as to the kind of grades one has to receive in college to be accepted at a top medical school. If you raised, I assume, right? Like, as to how talented someone has to be to lead. Are they like super secret, super smart grades? grades? I have an MD from Harvard. I am board certified in cardiothoracic medicine and trauma surgery. I have been awarded citations from seven different medical boards in New England, and I am never, ever sick at sea. So Sorkin. When someone goes into that chapel and they fall on their knees and they pray to God that they're- George C. Scott wondering, what am I doing here in this movie? (laughs) This isn't the movie I signed on for. That serial killer thing was pretty good. What happened to that? (laughs) This is a far cry from Dr. Strangelove. I wish I could get a role like now, that Italian guy I played at that read time. Your Bible, Dennis, and you go to your church, and with any luck, you might win the annual raffle. But if you're looking for God, he was in operating room number two on November 17th, and he doesn't like to be second guessed. You ask me if I have a God complex? Let me tell you something. I am God. Wow. Which I guess is the very definition of a God complex. So uh, case adjourned. Oh, no. Now I can't stop it. Scott Frank also worked on this, who was the screenwriter for Out of Sight. That's he worked reason. on Malice? Yes. He worked with Aaron Sorkin. Oh, he did? Yeah. Well, the good parts probably come from Scott Frank. 
<laughs> yeah, that originally was 15 minutes. He got it down to a tight six. Malice, apparently, big influence. Now, a bigger influence was a movie I love. I don't know if you've seen Michael Mann's Manhunter. We've talked yes. about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, brilliant movie. Such a different sort of adaptation. And here's a little scene with Francis Dollarhide and Freddie Lowndes. You know who I am? I don't want to know who you are. According to you, I'm a sexual pervert. An animal, you said. You know who I am now? Yes. Do you feel privileged? I'm very scared. Open your eyes. Mr. Lanz, you're a reporter. Your job is to report. That's why you're here. And if you don't open your eyes, I'll staple your eyelids to your forehead. Well, here I am. Tom Noonan his great slow enunciation and just that crazy shot that Michael Mann stages where he's got a woman stocking half over his face and some sort of 60s Sputnik spiraling light fixture in the background. It's so creepy and amazing. Both Manhunter and Seven are both so stylish and are so pretty to look at in ways that are different, but they're complementary in ways that really do appeal to the part of one that likes crime and sort of finds the luridness sort of fascinating and like it really sort of gives over to it. The beauty of the ugliness, like being on some of these sets that were constructed, the gluttony set, for example, was a really filthy, foul, and disgusting place to be. Yeah. It had cockroaches. It had rotted food. I think it even had a cockroach wrangler. It did have a cockroach wrangler, and it actually, apparently, if you want to keep cockroaches within a specific area, Chris, you can put Vaseline down. I believe there were nine crates of cockroaches used in the gluttony scene, and horrifically, although the Vaseline did keep the cockroaches from leaving the set. They did not keep them from crawling into the underpants of the actor playing the corpse. The movie begins, and then you have this credit sequence, which is so identifiably 90s now, that handwritten moving white type and a remix of uh, Nine Inch Nails' song. I was thinking, you know, I can't think of another musician whose sound is so identifiable as Trent Reznor. This is a remix. It's not even the original track of the song. Right. But when they play that little bit of Closer, there's just no doubt who that is. And that has a direct line to, I think, the work of Mark Romanek, who's another music video director who yes. directed the Nine Inch Nails video. For That was such a visually important music video and song of its time. That, And I think you can see that here. That's the 90s-ness of that, but he's such a film nerd that the references, there are Clute references when they're taping up in the bathroom. It's a reference to Clute because you can see the spinning wheels of the old-fashioned tape recorder. And all of the non-specificity of the urbanity in which we're in. We're never told that we're in New York City, although that clearly was the intent of the screenwriter. Although it was all shot in Los Angeles. It's all shot in Los Angeles, but... You never see an identifier. That non-specific, I mean, it's very specific in the sense of like you really feel this city, but the fact that it has no name and names are even, you know, there's a a bit where Tracy, who played by Gwyneth Paltrow, laughs at the fact that 
you know, the two detectives only call each other by their last names or going for a kind of timelessness and an urban dehumanization. Mm -hmm. It works so well. There's some of these things that are so easy to get wrong, but here it does feel so real and tactile. Well, here's a scene where our mismatched partners, you know, the genre (laughs) convention, got the grizzled veteran and Morgan Freeman, who's about to retire, and you have the hotshot, ambitious young kid whose naivete is bound only by his ability to blunder into scenarios he's not quite experienced. Here's a scene where having taken over Morgan Freeman's desk in the detective office, Brad Pitt's character Mills receives a phone call from his wife. Mills? Are you okay? Something wrong? It's very white. Yeah, why? Why? I'd like to speak to you. Uh, this is Detective Somerset. Well, that's, it's nice to talk to you, too. I, I appreciate the offer, but... Well, in that case, I'd be delighted. Yes, thank you very much. Tracy, Somerset. Hello. Very happy to meet you. I've heard a lot about you. Except, of course, your first name. It's William. Hmm. It's a good name, William. William, I'd like you to meet David. David, this is William. All right, I'm gonna. I'll be right back. How are the kids? They're good. They're in the room. Come on. So, of course, the joke being that we've already spent 30 minutes with the two partners not getting along, and she's the catalyst for them to let their guards down, meet each other, and have a nice, warm-hearted scene in the home before shit To cut through sort of the macho bullshit as well as the sort of police uh, great line that's in the trailer when we were Mm -hmm. playing it last week, when Mills does ask Somerset, does it affect you, all of these things that you see? It is nice to have this this character of the wife, and again, even though there's something a little bit diminishing about that, Mm -hmm. but like to sort of cut through the macho bullshit and the hurt and difficulty that it must be to be a police officer in this kind of city but to cut through that and sort of remind them both that there is life underneath that. And I was wondering when she calls on the phone and she obviously invites him and he says like, no, I'm afraid I can't make it. Yes. And then she says something very quickly. He says, all right, in that case, I'll accept it. Like, <laughs> what does she have over him? That two words. Life magic, man. They, they have guess. that. You know, Gwyneth is great in this movie. Uh, yeah. As you said, she doesn't have a lot to do, but she has a really great scene with Morgan Freeman in the diner later 
when she confesses that she's having a really hard time, doesn't know anyone in the city, is isolated and is pregnant and tells Somerset that before she tells her own husband. And that information will come back to a devastating right hook to the first time viewer. One of the things about that, not only did she not tell him that she's pregnant, she just didn't tell him like she didn't want to come here at all. Yeah. And does not want to be in the city. Yeah. And it's interesting because this came out in 1995 and cast your mind back, folks, to that was sort of the beginning of what has now become kind of an urban renaissance that cities around the late 90s were becoming popular again. I, you know, I was living in yeah. Chicago and I remember a thing in 1997, specifically, they did a cover story on the magazine in mm-hmm. the in the Tribune, uh, like, hey, people are moving back into the loop. You know, <laughs> you know, isn't that crazy? Who'd have thought? Who'd have thought that it? people would want to move into yeah. the center of town? Which, of course, now you know, x many years later, everybody wants to live in the center of town. But it's a strange thing that we are not that far from yeah. the sort of battle days, certainly of New York, but I mm-hmm. think probably to a lesser extent to all other cities. There had been certainly white flight, but this is the beginning of that. So you have these these characters that come to the city, but one of them does not want this kind of life and the kind of life that, that a city promises. But she comes presumably because she just she loves her husband and wants to make him happy which makes it even more tragic that she gets swallowed up by the city. And I think it speaks to the reality that a lot of women experience when pregnant of isolation. It can be an isolating experience. You can feel alone in it, even with your partner or amongst friends or family. In this scene between Morgan Freeman's character and Brad Pitt's character in a bar, you get to hear the two opposing worldviews of Mills and Somerset. Mills is asking Somerset, why are you retiring? And they have this conversation, much like the scene between Gwyneth Paltrow and Morgan Freeman, comes back to devastating effect at the end of the movie when Somerset and John Doe really share partial worldview, even though they're on opposite sides of the law. You want to be a champion. Well, let me tell you, people don't want a champion. They want to eat cheeseburgers, play the lotto, and watch television. Hey, how did you get like this? I want to know. It wasn't one thing, I can tell you that. Go on. I just don't think I can continue to live in a place that embraces and nurtures apathy as if it was a virtue. You know different, you know better. I didn't say I was different or better. I'm not. Hell, I sympathize. I, I sympathize completely. Apathy is a solution. I mean, it's, it's easier to lose yourself in drugs than it is to cope with life. It's easier to steal what you want than it is to to earn it. It's easier to beat a child than it is to raise it. Hell, love costs, it takes effort and work. We are talking about people who are mentally ill. We are talking about people fucking crazy. No, no, we're not, no, no. We're we're, we're talking about everyday life here. You you, you can't afford to be this naive. Fuck off. You should listen to yourself. You say that the problem with people is that they don't care. So I don't care about people. It makes no sense. You know why? You you care. You want to know? Damn right. And you're going to make a difference. Whatever. The point is, is that I don't think you're quitting because you believe these things you say. I don't. I think you want to believe them because you're quitting. You want me to agree with you and you want me to say, yeah, 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 you're right, it's all fucked up, it's a fucking mess, we should all go live in a fucking log cabin. But I won't. I won't say that. 
I don't agree with you. I do not. I can't. It's a great scene. Yeah. To me, that's uh, a lot of what the movie is about. But you also, implicitly, you have the irony. Because, of course, Somerset hasn't given up completely. Well, he has the genre convention of the grizzled, embittered detective who feels so deeply, and that's why he's so withholding. That scene, and when Somerset opens the box, and you get Somerset's interaction with Mills and with John Doe, you're kind of seeing Somerset without his armor on. Even in this yeah. scene, he's still defending the position a little bit more than he's really admitting what's going on underneath it. The scene with Gwyneth in the diner, he gets a little bit more at the heart of the matter of he loved once. And I yeah. think he bullied his partner into an abortion, right. partially out of this worldview. And there's a scene where he's riding in a police car and looking at various things happening on the street side. There's like cops covering up a body. And it's right. just that ennui, that world weariness that's part of the genre. But then, as you mentioned, it gets so upended as we go through the story. Everything you're saying is totally right. But oftentimes people will remember the convention, but won't remember what lies underneath the convention. Mm -hmm. If he didn't care and he was just rumpled and weary because he's just collecting a paycheck, there would be no drama. There would be nothing interesting. He wouldn't take time dressing. He wouldn't spend Mm -hmm. his time in the libraries if there wasn't something that he believed in on a sort of macro level that he believed was better. And yes, the individuals keep disappointing him. And of course, when you actually are experiencing those things in real time, you know, he is seeing all of these murders. So it affects you differently than, than something like where Brad Pitt is seeing all of these things in the abstract. And then later, they almost become upended when they have a discussion about whether they can go into John Doe's apartment. You know, and here's, I think, another underlying thing in there is the difference between youth versus actual experience. And the character of Mills, you know, spoiler for 1995-7, he fucks up and kills John Doe in the end. But you can see that there are seeds planted for that, that he is impatient, that he Mm -hmm. is self-righteous. You know, he's selfish in the way that young, particularly men, Mm -hmm. are. If life had gone a little bit differently, who knows if he would become a Somerset, if he had gotten smarter. But it becomes tragic because you see there's so much life to him, but the downside of it is that it makes you impatient and make mistakes. We now have a toll-free telephone number. That's and right. we would like listeners to call us. Let me log in so I can figure out what our number is because I purposely chose a good one. And what we want you to do is something like call us and leave us a message. Do I need to be That's more specific it. than that, Chris? Yeah. You could say anything you want. You anyway. can have suggestions of what we should do, shouldn't do. Yeah. Tell us a movie that you've got to watch all the way through whenever it's on. Things that you hate in movies. I would think that something we would have fun with is if people said, I want you guys to address this trope and let us find some examples to say, we got this great voicemail from a listener and they mentioned this filmic trope. Call us toll free 855-755-5322. That's 855-755-5322. That is very memorable. Yeah. 855-755-5322. Yeah. Um, Now, Chris is going to record a clever voicemail thing so that when you call, you're going to hear him and he's going to figure out how to do it. Yeah, there's value added. And I think the interesting thing between the two characters and the two actors is how different they are from each other. You have Mm -hmm. Morgan Freeman's very withdrawn, interior, still. And at this stage of his career, Brad Pitt is doing a lot of this stuff with his hands and he's moving a lot. He's much more manic and kind of agitated. And some of that is the role, but some of that is sort of where the actor was at this youthful part of his life. To your point, what's so powerful about the movie ultimately is how they flip-flop back and forth. The scene that you're talking about through Somerset's diligent commitment to the work, the drudgery. And when I say drudgery, I'm talking about 
reading some old fucking books that you probably read, Chris. <laughs> Canterbury Tales and shit like that. Oh, that, oh that my is God. very funny. Knight's Tale, huh? Give, uh, me, a li- give me a library flashback from college or something. <laughs> you know, he's willing to do that. And because he's willing to do that and because he's willing to pay off a corrupt member of the federal government yeah. to have library records researched, it leads them to John Doe's apartment. And there's a one of the greatest foot chases you'll ever see in a movie. Yeah. This is a movie unto itself and is rightly given much conversation in the making of stories of the film, both from an audio perspective, from an editing perspective. The chase is just unbelievable and phenomenal. Talking about conventions and expectations and upsetting them, Fincher says one thing he hates the most about any chase is when the hero seems to have a superhuman ability to know exactly where the yeah. bad guy's going, which is probably 99% of foot chases you see. Mm-hmm. You somehow know exactly where I'm going to twist and turn and which fence I've jumped over and which door I've went into. The starting point for this chase was like, you have no fucking idea where this guy is. He probably is going to see you first and kill you. And that's the whole MO of this chase. And feeds into, you know, this this urban nightmare. But yeah. you you yourself as a viewer get lost. Yes. You stop being able to track like even which buildings they're in. Yeah. Are they going up? Are they going down? Because it is disorienting. If you are running that fast, going up and, that, you know, trying mm-hmm. to follow somebody, you have no real way to get your bearings, especially like you said, when you add the real danger element. You know, I can't think of another chase off the top of my head where this often that the person being chased stops and waits to shoot. And the reveal at the end of the chase, Mills is hit with a tire iron by John Doe from the roof of a garbage truck and is collapsed in a puddle in which we see reflected the ominous visage of John Doe stepping up, picking up Mills's dropped gun and yeah. putting it to his temple and not pulling the trigger, letting him live, upsetting the genre conventions. It wasn't a chase It was a cat and mouse chase that John Doe was always in control of. Mm -hmm. And subsequent to the chase, Somerset finds Mills, and they then go back up to John Doe's apartment, the door of which they were just about to knock on when John Doe came in and fired gunshots at them. Where are you going? Going in. No, 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 wait, wait, wait. Wait. What are you talking about? Fucking shot at us. Can't go in. No, we can't. We We need a warrant. We got probable cause. Think about it. Finn, how do we get here? I can't tell anyone about this. Oh, come on. I can't tell anyone about this. Get out of the way. We have no reason to be here. Listen to me. Listen to me. Get up. Get the fuck off me. All right, I'm sorry. But would you just pay attention a minute? If we leave a hole like this, we won't be able to prosecute. The fucking guy will walk. Now, is that what you want? By the time we go to the warrant, someone else. Nah, fuck that. We know. A reason to knock on this door. Think about it, okay? Okay, okay, you're right, huh? All fucked up, you're right, you're right. Well, no point in arguing anymore. He kicks the door down. And then they go down to the alley and he pays a crack addict some money to make up a statement to give them probable cause yes. to have searched the apartment. And that's another incredible set piece, this, uh, the, the apartment of John Doe. But here you have the trust and naivete flipped over. Now there's a kind of thing where Somerset has a kind of faith in the system because he knows, like the city itself, the law can be a twisty, difficult thing. Mm-hmm. He knows where he can compromise, what rules yes. he can break and what rules he can't. And Mills 
doesn't freaking care. And again, that, that very fact, and it's only even watching it this time, you have these pieces showing that he is a hothead which will end up becoming the way that John Doe uh, wins. Yeah, I was thinking watching this scene just now, is it the attention to procedural detail that allows Mills's wife, Tracy, to become one of the next victims? This is part of the push me, pull me thing that's kind of always going on throughout the plot of the movie. Yes, Mills is wrong for just wanting to go in and find out what they need to find out to get this guy so that more people won't die. Right. He's right about that. Somerset is right that if you do that, this guy will get off. But is Mills right that had they not wasted time, had Mills just gone straight forward in all of his youthful bluster and naivete, would he have gotten to John Doe a little quicker? Or as is probably the case, John Doe is really the one who's in charge of everything the entire time. Sure, maybe he might have been right this one time, but how often are we supposed to trust a policeman for their feelings to not bother with due process and stuff like that? That's what it does get down to. Like, sure, of course, in one specific case, when you do look at one interaction where they saw it, and yes, it all makes sense, Mm -hmm. but there is a compromise there. And if you give into that compromise, why should should we, it's not like policemen are infallible either. That's one of the interesting tensions about this movie is not only that our rules good and bad, the way that it plays out between Somerset and Mills, but then of course, there's what John Doe's view of morality and rules and order Mm -hmm. and what that drives him to. You know, he kind of uh, has a little bit of both of those guys in him. It's complicated. I think the complication is what's impressive. It's so much harder to fight all the fights that need to be fought in order to get a movie as subtle as this one is, it's a lot easier to just make the movie the studio probably is really happy to have you make. Fincher tells a lot of stories here of all the different places and times that you have to have the energy and the stamina, which is what Somerset has. I kept thinking of coming off what he went through on Alien 3, is he bringing to this story as well a meta contextual approach to the concept of being an artist and trying to protect something that you're making. And in a way, Somerset is willing to do all that work to get a result that will hold up and be worthy of being framed in a case or being up on a screen. And Mills is the hot-headed kid who, I just want what I want and I want it now. And both have their place. Once we get into John Doe's apartment, all of the notebooks with the writing that we see in the title sequence were written for the film. By hand. Took months to complete. They cost $15,000. Someone actually wrote out all this stuff. They had a real art photographer take distressed photographs that could be John Doe's photographs. And she has her own featurette on Uh the DVD about her process, which is really fascinating. There's a sound design beneath the dialogue that sometimes you're aware of and conscious of because it's things like phones ringing in offices and typewriters and doors closing in office scenes. But there's also ambient noise beneath that and what the sound designer calls jewels, which are other little subtle sounds that he's interspersing. It's a reminder when you watch a movie how everything that you're seeing on the screen in the hands of competent professionals like these is a manufactured conceit that is assembled for you to experience in ways that 99% of us are completely unaware of. If there were less attention to detail, you would notice it more. There's another great thing that Fincher talks about that was really inspiring. Like one of the things that he said was about allowing other creative artistic professionals, including the actors, to go down places that he himself would intrinsically feel, no, that's not what I want. He says oftentimes, you know, it's his job to let those people have the freedom to do something that 
surprises him as the ultimately correct thing for the movie. It's much more common to allow that, or at least to hear people talk about it because it's it's more obvious with actors, you know, and allowing, yeah. like, okay, you know, do a take where you do this. You know, we talked about After Hours and the uh, yeah. Roseanne Arquette monologue, finding something new in the way that you do a take differently mm-hmm. and stuff like that. But I think it takes, it takes, like you said, a very confident and trusting director to know their own limitations and allow that element of collaboration, allow them to do what they do better than you, not just out of courtesy, but also they're going to find solutions yeah. that you didn't think of. And ironically, the more he allows other people to explore, the more he is able to get a vision that, like you yes. said, becomes this unified a David Fincher film. He talks a lot about sort of with editors particularly, after you've shot the movie and you're in the edit and you're assembling it, there's tremendous pressure to deliver a result. Imagine having the self-possession and the awareness to say to an editor who's pitching a way to handle a scene that seems contrary to what David Fincher thinks he wants. It's very easy just to say, we don't have time for that. I want you to do it this way. But he views it as his responsibility like Mm -hmm. to let them go down there because even if it doesn't work out, you've created something important in that person's sense of their involvement and that often... If you kind of try to understand where they're coming from in that approach, it'll end up informing him in a better way, too. And that goes for any one of the great directors that we have talked about. It's always there is that element of management and of trusting your collaborators. So let's go to some scenes with Kevin Spacey. Let's go to the car after John Doe turns himself in and pitches this whole thing of like, I'll take you out to the desert and we'll find the other two bodies. There's this sequence between Somerset Mills and John Doe, who is behind a screen. So John Doe is in the back of a cop car. So you have that mesh covering him. But when we see Mills, he's shot from the John Doe perspective. So he too is covered with a screen because he's in a prison of his own making too. Also, it looks like a confessional. Yes. The screen that separates a priest from a confessor. And you wonder in this case, who is on which side? This is where we're getting John Doe's manifesto, if there is such a thing. I've been trying to figure something in my head, and maybe you can help me out, yeah? When a person is insane, as you clearly are, do you know that you're insane? Maybe you're just sitting around, reading guns and ammo, masturbating in your own feces. Do you just stop and go, wow, it is amazing how fucking crazy I really am. Yeah? Do you guys do that? It's more comfortable for you to label me insane. It's very comfortable. It's not something I would expect you to accept. But I did not choose. I was chosen. Whatever. I don't doubt that you believe that, John. But it seems to me that you're overlooking a glaring contradiction. Meaning what? Glad you asked. If you were chosen, that is, by a higher power, if your hand was forced, it seems strange to me that you would get such enjoyment out of it. You enjoyed torturing those people. This doesn't seem in keeping with martyrdom, does it? John. I doubt I enjoyed it any more than Detective Mills would enjoy time alone with me in a room without windows. Isn't that true? How happy would it make you to hurt me with impunity? That hurts my feelings. I would never... You wouldn't only because there's consequences. It's in those eyes of yours, though. Nothing wrong with a man taking pleasure in his work. I won't deny my own personal desire to turn each sin against the sinner. What's incredible about that scene with Morgan Freeman 
the way he handles John Doe in that, when he's like, I'm glad you asked. Mills is telling John Doe yeah. all this stuff. And There's crazy something lunatic. about that adversarial thing. It makes it very easy yeah. for Doe. Yeah. And yeah, it's a convention. Good cop, bad cop. But there's also what John Doe goes on to explain is a worldview very similar to the one that Somerset expressed in the bar scene. He casts himself as a reaction to this cold, unfeeling world that turns a blind eye to horrors. And that's exactly what Somerset has articulated. Yes. And the way he interacts with him as a result gets more results than yes. the Mills way. So in the end, John Doe does get the best of Mills in this car scene. And this is just the last portion of it, which is also really worth playing. You should be thanking me. Why is that, John? Because you're going to be remembered after this. Realize, detective, the only reason that I'm here right now is that I want it to be. No. No, we would have got you eventually. Oh, really? So, what were you doing? Biding your time? Toying with me? Allowing five innocent people to die until you felt like springing your trap? Tell me, what was the indisputable evidence you were going to use on me right before I walked up to you and put my hands in the air? John, calm down. I seem to remember us knocking on your door. Oh, that's right. And I seem to remember breaking your face. You're only alive because I didn't kill you. Okay, sit back. I spared you. Sit back! Remember that, detective, every time you look in the mirror at that face of yours for the rest of your life. Or should I say, for the rest of what life sit I've back. allowed you to have. Sit back, you fucking freak! Shut your fucking mouth! You're no messiah. You're a, you're a movie of the week. You're a fucking t-shirt, at best. Don't ask me to pity those people. I don't mourn them any more than I do the thousands that died at Sodom and Gomorrah. Is that to say, John, that what you were doing was God's good work? The Lord works in mysterious ways. Has so much good stuff been brought to bear for something so fundamentally horrible? But it is a tragedy. <laughs> I mean, I... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, I do see something underneath it. Like, you learn by, like, oh, he did the wrong thing. Yeah. As opposed to, like, yes. oh, this is just ugly to, to live in it. Okay, so the famous ending, the head in the box ending, the one that we all know. It has one of Morgan Freeman's greatest moments in the movie, I think, is his release upon opening the box... It must be so hard as an actor to watch yourself on screen. You've had that experience, right? Yeah. I would personally I mean, I find it, it horrifying. You love it. <laughs> <laughs> Do actors roughly divide into two camps? Definitely 99% hate watching them. Oh, really? I think. Oh, yeah. Really? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, because I think that's like what most normal human beings who don't have some fundamental well of damage that <laughs> drives them to want the <laughs> approval of thousands of people as an actor. And I would think that most of them would be horrified, as we all are, by seeing, you know, when you take your phone out and you're going to, like, take a photo of something, but the camera is actually turned yeah. on you and you... Oh my God, who's that monster? <laughs> oh, that's me. Yeah, but it's, presumably, it's if you're be in a thing, you know, that you've, way. you're prepared, you, you know, you got a good night's sleep, the makeup person helped, you mm -hmm. know, 
when you're up on screen, like they've done their best to make you uh, to make you look your best. Morgan Freeman says he went to dailies once as a young actor and never again because he realized if he allowed himself to watch that stuff, it would change the process for him. I've heard other actors say this, that especially in film, it's not about being up on the screen in that way. I think of it like that. It's like, oh, you're in a movie, so you can be in a movie up on the screen yeah. someday and watch this performance that you gave in a movie. But a lot of actors will say that for them, the acting on set in the moment is the thing they're there for. Totally. And then once you watch it, you become self-conscious yeah. in a way where you can't disappear into the role in the same way because you're looking at it literally from outside. Everybody works a little bit differently. There are probably certain people who are, who would like the, like, oh, I can calibrate this. I see what I did there. I didn't do this. It is such a panoply of things. And I don't know enough about Morgan Freeman in terms of his acting style. Mm -hmm. He is somebody who comes across with such sincerity, for mm -hmm. lack of a better word. He is unaffected. So I can see that he'd be like, what am I going to watch this for? What mm -hmm. am I going to learn? I'm just going to focus on the things that I did wrong and stuff like that. And that'll make it more difficult for me to, in the moment, be in this yeah. kind of alternate reality. And Morgan Freeman says when he's watching this in order to do the commentary track, he's like, even watching this now, I'm doing it because people are curious about the movie and, you know, I'm glad to be able to offer something. He's like, but I'm looking at this scene where he opens the box and he's just remembering all the things that he tried and all the awareness that he had that in this moment, Somerset has to be as shocked as any human being has ever been shocked. That's all. How are you ever going to feel like you nailed that? Now, one thing I do remember, like we've talked a lot about movies that we saw in the 90s in the yeah. theater and kind of remembering or not remembering. I mean, man, I remember this. John Doe has the upper hand. Mills! Here he comes. What? I wish I could have lived like you Shut did. Shut up. What the fuck are you talking about? You hear me, Detective. I'm trying to tell you how much I admire you and your pretty wife. What? Tracy. What'd you fucking say? It's disturbing how easily a member of the press can purchase information from the men in your precinct. What the fuck? Down! I visited your home this morning. After you'd left. I tried to play husband. I tried to taste the life of a simple man. It didn't work out. So, I took a souvenir. Her pretty head. What the fuck's he talking about? Give me your gun. What's going on over there? I down. saw you with the box. Who was in the box? Because I envy your normal life. Put the gun down, baby. It seems that envy is my sin. No, what's in the box? Not taking, what's gun. in the fucking box? Give me the gun. He just told you. You lie! You're a fucking liar! Shut up! That's what he wants. He, wa he wants you to shoot him. No! No! You tell me, you tell me. That's not true. That's not true. Become vengeance, David. No, she's all right. You tell me. Become Tell me she's all right! She made her a suspect, David. No! Just threw it all away, you know? No! She begged for her life, Detective. Shut up! She begged for her life. Shut up. And for the life of the baby inside of her. Shut up!
gun, baby. David, if you kill him, he will win. Oh, God! Oh, God! Oh! What a yeah. scene. I'm responding to so many things about that scene that have been done over yep. and over and in much lesser ways. The drama and the perversion mm-hmm. and the sadness around it. Like the it inevitability. We're watching it now for the umpteenth time, but it has to work for you to watch the first time. Yeah. He yeah. makes himself the victim of his own envy. He is not just God's messenger because he implicates himself and yeah. makes himself a part of it. I think that's a pretty subtle, and uh, especially when something where the gimmick is so on top, like seven deadly sins, is going to be a murder. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to add that one twist gives it so much more. And also the way that it takes advantage of Mills's character. Somerset's world-weary attempt to control this yeah. situation, but also his awareness that Mills does not have what it takes to yeah. not allow John Doe to win, not to blame him. No, absolutely. And I think maybe if it were a 50-year-older Mills, but there's something about, again, the impetuousness of youth and the fact that, the, that at youth you can feel things that strongly in mm-hmm. a way that you allow yourself to be taken away by mm-hmm. a crime of passion, a crime mm-hmm. of passion, which of course the movie opens with. But that's what takes him away. And that's uh, that's the kind of thing that in some ways life takes away from you. It sands down some of that emotion. There's one great John C. McGinley line. <laughs> uh, John C. McGinley, he utters this great line from The Chopper. So the movie, as conceived by Fincher at all, was originally supposed to end on the gunshot. And Fincher says they had done a test screening and his advice to the theater operator was gunshot and then there's black leader. So I mean, this is black screen for, you know, 20, 30 seconds and then slowly bring the house lights up. He said, instead what they did was he shot him, the bright lights came (laughs) up and everyone was just sort of like, had no fucking idea what just happened. So the studio insisted that they add on this bit We'll take care of him. Whatever he needs. Where are you gonna be? Around. I'll be around. Ernest Hemingway once wrote, the world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. It didn't bother me until I heard the story. And then I was like, those suits. (laughs) I just, that's the way it ends. So I'm like, that's your coda. And this is our world-weary detective doing a little voiceover. Doesn't wear out its welcome. man, now, I don't know why. I guess I'm just so on the side of the creative side of the film that I'm like, my God damn it. It is such a downer or can be such a downer that having at least that little bit of like, because that quote. It's a subtle, interesting idea (laughs) that like, even though things are crap, it's still... You don't give up. Well, before that, even with, you know, the head in the box, this went through a lot of rewrites. But I wanted to go through a couple of the Mm -hmm. uh, endings just because I think they're kind of interesting. One, John Doe does not murder Tracy. He murdered a lookalike. What do you mean? He got it wrong? Oh, he he, purposefully did. It's a trick. He tricks him 
into murdering him. Uh-huh. And so therefore, Mills is going to spend his whole life in jail. Presumably now they can use the crime of passion defense. Okay. But yes. that was it. And that Somerset decides not to retire, as he does here, yeah. and gives his country house to Tracy and the baby. Right. So another thing that was cut out but shot was... Morgan Freeman returning from the country house that he's bought for retirement. Right. So the first one was, it's a lookalike. It's convoluted. I understand why they abandoned it. Second one, similar to this, head in the box, Mills is about to shoot John Doe. Somerset tries to stop Mills with his switchblade. Mills shoots Somerset in the <laughs> shoulder to wound him and then kills Doe. <laughs> And then two weeks later, we wake up with Somerset in the hospital. Okay. And the captain's there. He's like, well, Somerset, Mills is going to court tomorrow, uh-huh. like for this murder. Yeah. And then the captain gives him a note from Mills. Which, Sorry I shot you? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> if I had to do it all over again. No, but the note says, you were right. You were right about everything. Fade to black? And then fade to black. I don't like that either. Well, I'll tell you, when I first was reading it, I was like, this sounds so silly. Like, why it's bother? But broke. I do think there is something about that acknowledging that Mills has learned, like, oh my gosh, what you were telling me. Yeah, but then it's a lesson. We can all feel good about our lessons. Well, he can't because he's going to be in jail for at least a long time. And then the third one, which actually takes place somewhere different. Yeah. Doe kidnaps Mills. Somerset learns that Doe was raised in a Catholic orphanage by by an abusive priest. (laughs) Tracks John Doe down to this church and finds the church all done up with artwork of the seven Uh, deadly sins, where Doe then tries to goad Somerset to murder him, sort of like he does with with Mills and this. And Doe has already cut with a knife a cross in Mills' chest Mm -hmm. and suspended him above the altar. You know, just a little too lectory. A little, 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 we're getting a little more lurid in this. And then I guess he shoots. Mills, and then Mills finally dies in Somerset's arms as the church is set on fire. I don't know who sets the church on fire, but it's set that, on fire. That's like a Madonna video version. And then uh, Doe and Somerset subsequently engage in a shootout with Somerset wounding <laughs> Doe and letting him die in the flames. And then the the film ends with uh, Mills's funeral. I think the moral is, people, be, be thankful that you get some of the endings you get that you like <laughs> in movies you love. You know, if you think this is heavy-handed, just think it could have been this thing with the church and the... <laughs> Now, there's the one that I actually like, um, and I think this last bit of dialogue is great, although it might be a little diehardish. I had read that one ending has Somerset shooting John Doe yes. because that destroys John Doe's plans, and that as Somerset grabs the gun from Mills, Mills says, what are you doing? And Somerset says, I'm retiring. <laughs> <laughs> You're kidding. I read something similar, but I did not read that he actually ended with, I'm retiring. Yeah, I'm retiring. <laughs> I was, again, I, I guarantee was, you I was that, with you up until I guarantee that. you that came from a screenwriter. I don't know if it came from the screenwriter, but yeah. that's such a screenwriter <laughs> button line. What are you doing? I'm retiring. <laughs> yeah, it's that he shoots him once, and then he walks away towards camera, yes. this metal guitar playing, tosses uh, like the a, heli- a the helicopter cigarette over, over his shoulder, <laughs> everything <laughs> explodes <laughs> behind <laughs> him. <laughs> Coming soon. <laughs> eight. <laughs> the sequel to seven, eight. The ending is still surprising. Yeah. When I watched it this time, I one million percent had in my mind that we saw Gwyneth Paltrow's head in the box. Oh, yeah. I remembered it that way. 
And Fincher says that's a very common thing. He actually says that right after the movie came out, a woman came up to him at a cocktail party and was just fucking berating him yeah. for including that horrible shot. He's like, that's not a shot in the movie. She's like, yeah. ah, it's in the movie, which is, I think, a testament to how powerful that twist was at the yeah. time and still is and complicated. Do you want to do some alternative casting? Yes, because this is one of those films where there are so many exciting different things. Put that one back. For the role of Tracy, Christina Applegate <laughs> turned it down. Okay. Sorry, uh, Christina. But... Robin Wright Penn also auditioned mm. for it. Robin Wright Penn, who would, of course, work with David Fincher many years later in House of Cards. True. For the part of John Doe, it was not just Kevin Spacey. There were a couple interesting things. Val Kilmer. He's a little too mastermindy when he's doing the bad guy thing. Like Spacey's off-kilterness is and such the right thing. And Val Kilmer as a leading man. There's something that's more yeah. physical, whereas John Doe, he changes his name to that. This is somebody who kind of blends. And yeah. I think, you know, Kevin Spacey has a more character-y, normal yeah. guy look. And in fact, we see John Doe without knowing we did, yeah. posing as a photographer. And Arlie Ermey mm. auditioned for the role of uh, Doe. Yeah. And the captain was a consolation prize for that. Fincher on a commentary track talks about Ermey's audition, how it was so authoritative and Arlie Ermey-ish in a way that was great, but it just wasn't what they were going yeah. for. But yeah. he's great. He has one hilarious scene where he's chewing out the two detectives and he's just come and plopped himself down on someone else's desk. And in the middle of his diatribe, the phone on the desk rings and he <laughs> picks it up and he goes, That's not even my desk. And then, of course, somebody considered, but uh, just uh, Michael Stipe of REM. Oh, come on. For John Doe? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, he's also, again, like sort of bald. Bring me every thin, balding guy in town. Well, exactly. And, you know, you think of like, you know, certain uh, rock stars have been able to make the yeah, transition. Man. I'm trying to do a Michael Stipe. You I know, don't even like, know what it is. You know, it's like when you kill people. Uh, well, we could have lived in that timeline. A bunch of people for Somerset. Gene Hackman offered the role, but turned it down because too many night shoots. Mm. And I suppose, uh, you know, when you're that kind of star, you don't, yeah. you don't have to put up with that shit. Al Pacino considered, though mm. I don't know if that included an offer, but he was doing City Hall, which came out the following year. Yeah. It gets really interesting with the Mills possibilities, including Denzel Washington yeah. turned it down, calling it too dark and mm -hmm. evil, though he said after seeing it, he regretted it. And actually, Al Pacino said the same, that he he wishes he would have done it. And I think Denzel Washington would have been fascinating. Yeah, he could have done the hot-headed thing. I think of him as so most of the things that I... Well, it's funny because now you think of him doing things. the Somerset role. Exactly, yeah. But Stallone says that he turned that. it down. Uh, you know, I don't I know how much like I believe it. like us to believe that, but... Uh, but then here are two others, and these I think would have been both <laughs> wrong, but both fascinating <laughs> to think of. Uh, Kevin Costner as Mills. Costner? It would have been uh, playing sure. up more the sure. Rube coming to the city okay. kind yeah, of thing. I, I don't think it would have worked, but... <laughs> And the other one is uh, Nicolas Cage. Now you're talking. He would have shot the guy like at the very beginning. There wouldn't have been much of a movie. Uh, oh, those are great. There was a funny anecdote. They went on this whole conversation about marketing people at film studios. Uh -huh. Fincher is like, I've never once on my own films, my friends' films, never once have you been in a screening where the lights go up and the marketing people go, great. No problem. You can sell this. <laughs> He's like, it doesn't even matter what it is. Their just default is like, oh, I don't know. I don't know how we're going to, how, oh, I don't know what we're going to do with this. But he says they don't help themselves because they invite people to the screening to say, would you like to see a new movie starring one of the stars of Driving Miss Daisy? 
And one of the stars from Legends of the Fall, people come into the theater and they're shown seven. I was just like, great, I'm going to see Jessica Tandy and Aiden Quinn. And these people some... are horrified. And he was standing in the lobby and three women walked by who would be in the target market for Legends of the Fall and Driving Miss Daisy. Yeah. And Fincher said one of them turned to the other two and said, the people responsible for making that movie should be shot. <laughs> And he's like, it's just so not helpful. <laughs> it's too good. fucking funny. I think that your signature openings get appropriate amount of attention. I don't think, however, that your signature endings get enough. I think we need to center them in the narrative of the podcast. So I'll cut it back into the center. What Chris does is he plays the last line of dialogue from a famous or infamous or known or slightly well-known film. And what we want you to do is be first to figure out what it was. When the episode goes up, we'll put up a image from the film that you're talking about that doesn't give it away. And we will say, who can identify? Identify Chris's final line from this week's episode. Oh, I love that. And we'll do I that think on, that's great. We'll do that on Facebook. Facebook finally has a reason for being. Okay, would you like to move on to a palate cleanser? Yes. Oh, I've been waiting. We can do Latchkey TV, or we could go to Bomb Squad. Uh, that's it. You have two choices. So. <laughs> that's it, huh? <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'll do... Um, Which would you like? What was the first one? Latchkey Latch TV. TV. Let's do... Uh, uh, why don't I tell you what the category um, is in Latchkey TV? And since we're doing a genre pick. A, sure. A neo-noir. I thought 70s and 80s TV detective show themes would be I'm an interesting it. thing. Forget it. You know, Bomb Squad can go fuck itself. <laughs> Hello? Adam 12, were you a big Adam 12 viewer? No. It's a little before your time. This is a big show for me growing up. I'm actually up. surprised it's in color. Yeah. Two cops on patrol. Kent McCord, the great Kent, Kent McCord, McCord is Officer Jim Reed. This is like kind of a flat foot show. You yeah. know, these are just regular cops on the beat. On the, They're in uniform. In uniform, Not in a patrol car. Yeah. They are, their patrol car is... Is Adam 12, A12. That's their mm. car they drive in at. So that was like a big show that you watched as a kid. I'm not sure why, just because it was on all the time. <laughs> You'll watch what they put in front well, of you. It was kind of like proto-cops for its right. time. These were not mastermind serial killer cases. It's right. like Mrs. O'Leary's flower pot fell on a cat. You know, that kind of stuff. Sounds riveting. Now, of course, one of the iconic opens of the time. You know now where you're on. Ponch and John. I never remembered it being this kind of like cocaine and disco, but <laughs> I guess Chips was really about getting loaded and riding your Electro Glide on the 405, right? They're super coordinated. Cops drive like that for an intimidation factor. Next to it works. They drive next to each other in like close formation. And they've got great posture. Yeah. Chips famously in quotations, which I think is a really weird thought. Yeah. One thing you'll learn, it's sort of bizarre, is that all these detective cop shows just have these like kind of jazzy, disco-y musical themes. There's no dialogue, there's no sound up, sort of convention that's all about like mystery. We don't have any of that. And in no themes. lyrics. No lyrics, like no nothing. Riding the Isn't that highways. Weird? Actor Chris Pine's father was in Chips, Larry Pine. Did I didn't you know realize that? that that was his father. Yes. Now, this one is personal and emotional for me, Chris. We've talked about it before. Alice? This is close to my heart. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Should have known. 
This is Jim Rockford. At the tone, leave your name and message. I'll get back to you. You are full of bullshit, my friend. I will sue you for everything you have. I will sue your ass. This is the ringtone of my phone, by the way. Uh, yes, oh, we've we've heard it. I usually cut it, but uh, it's been in a lot <laughs> it's of. It's gone off a few times. Now, Rockford Files sort of. We don't have like video footage here. We're using still, kind of, animations in order to tell the story. And Although, these are actual stills from episodes. Right? Yeah, yeah. Unlike this sort of B-roll, fit uh, film. Correct. Specifically for the opening. Again, with Rockford Files, that 2D kind of film look on the stills, you have that that feeling of Southern California in yeah. the, yeah, the late sweaty. 70s. And anyway, that's a great theme. Yeah. I have to admit, that is not a show I think I've ever seen. Oh. Like Columbo, it's just... Would you like to borrow my full seven season? Yeah, I'm fine. Oh. But whichever uh, syndicated local yes. thing, that just wasn't on very much. For cops on the job, of course we have this. Maybe the funkiest theme song mm. of all time. This is when New York was New York. Yep. This is such a great show. Yeah. Loved Barney Miller. Loved Wojo. Loved Jack Sue. Loved Ron Glass. Barbara Berry. Vagoda. Vagoda. Oh, how great was Vagoda? Max Gale. Why was I talking about Max Gale sometime in the last I think decade? He comes up because he's he was in something recently. Yeah. And of course, Steven Landisberg came in as Dietrich in season two. And as a kid, that was one of the more interesting characters on TV. Because yeah. he was just that know-it-all guy who had access to every fact and information. Great voice and a sort of dry he delivery. He was very unique. Very unique. Very unique actor. And not what you'd expect for a cop. No. I just wanted to play this one because it's a theme by Quincy Jones. Ironside. Ah. So in Ironside, you get this dramatic relief animation of why the Raymond Burr character is in a, in wheelchair, a wheelchair. Yeah. Oh, that's As awesome. a result of a shooting. And this theme is by Quincy Jones. That's very cool. These graphics are great. They're great. I love that it's look. a really, really stirring. Why was watching TV in the 70s so much better? Because you had so few choices. Yeah, man. I guess you, so. You would have done great under a communist dictatorship. <laughs> I think I would have been happiest with just a little mono speaker in my kitchen that they just fed me yeah, whatever, whatever the news of the day was. <laughs> I don't need to hear anything. Now with all these choices, all these things you could do. Oh, it's anyway, difficult. that's your 70s and 80s detective. Oh, that was show. exciting. That's for you great. from Latchkey TV. Now I do have a bomb squad for you, Chris. Bring it. But this is more of a conversational one because part of the reason why I'm going to say this is a bomb is I could play you this whole trailer. And if you're just listening, you'll have no idea what movie we're talking about. So just listen to this. Okay. Do you have any idea what movie we're in? What genre do you think we're in? Uh, psychological thriller. Okay. 
Somebody got into an elevator. They're probably going home. And you realize that this person lives a kind of weird life, right? If this were 15 years ago, I'd assume that the person goes home and you realize they have somebody like locked in a cage under their bed. But we're past that. Music's pretty good. Hot in here. Take my money. Well, take my money, whatever that is. Turn around and look at what it is. Oh, wow. Far be it for me, Chris, to suggest that a film written, directed by two men, Mm -hmm. which is about the empowerment of women who have been oppressed by a cruel and brutalizing regime, in this case, Fox News and Roger Ailes. This is Bombshell. This is Bombshell, (laughs) starring Nicole Kidman, Margot Robbie, Charlize Theron. The whole trailer is the three protagonists on an elevator, not saying a word, and then getting off on the same floor. A movie about a topic that is intrinsically about giving women voice doesn't allow them to say anything in the fucking trailer. And this is not one of those trailers where it's like, hey, we just shot for a week and the movie's coming out in a year, so we don't have any footage to show you. No, no, this comes out next weekend. Because I've seen trailers for it that did have like proper scenes and stuff. I don't know. I don't know if it's meant to be like raising the tension, but I don't know. The buzz on this trailer so far is just like, holy shit, Charlie's Throne looks exactly like Megyn Kelly, which she does. A movie about this thing, about Fox News, I, I just don't, I don't really care. I don't think, I think we're all living in the detritus of Fox News. I don't want to go watch it. The thing that most recently came out that covered a lot of the same ground, the miniseries that Showtime did. Friend of mine was telling me how much he was like his favorite thing he's seen in years, the loudest voice in the room, with uh, Russell Crowe as, uh, sure. as what's his nuts. Bomb Squad, I'm calling it, directed by Jay Roach. Yeah, it does seem like Has an odd Jay Roach choice. ever made a good movie? Um, wasn't he the guy who did Citizen Kane, or am I thinking of somebody else? Uh, he did do Meet the Fuckers, so he can handle oh, political, you know, yeah. Austin Powers. He made three Austin Powers movies. Yeah. Mystery Alaska. Meet the Fockers, Game Change. That's the Sarah Palin one, right? Yep. Uh, the campaign. Will Ferrell and Zach Galifianakis. None of this. None of this really lends great. itself to think like, "Hey, let's get him to do Bombshell." Except like, that he does seem to have some kind of political bent, based uh, on well, the fact that he directed the campaign, The Brink, uh, Game Change, Recount. It interests him how much it, okay. Bombshell actually deals with that. I, don't know. I mean, I hate to be so obvious as to call a movie with the word bomb in the title uh, <laughs> a bomb, but I'm going to go ahead and call this well, a bomb. I'm going to say the opposite. I'm going to say really? that they are so confident in how good this movie is, okay. they tempted fate by putting bomb in the title. Wow. Just asking, you know, like, come on, come on, see okay. if you can still shit on our movie, <laughs> seeing how good it is. All right, well, we'll find out, uh, won't we? When I saw the trailer for this that actually did have words, yeah. I have to. I was intrigued. You were intrigued? I was intrigued. Okay, so maybe this is a question of a poor choice of an original trailer. Perhaps, I don't know. Perhaps. Look, 
I've also I love bombs. You know what I mean? Like my oh sure, <laughs> my tastes are not all. But it just the seems fact to that me, I was intrigued. Might not I guess what I'm responding to is in a way this is an important story. Yeah, and to not see the marketing materials handled particularly well. Now this is the work of marketing people, not yes. the work of the creative people involved in the movie. So we have to be aware of the fact that the movie might be really good, but the marketing people might have been so afraid that they just said, "Oh, let's use the elevator scene. No one says anything." There's nothing anyone could get worked up about. We're selling the fact we have three huge actresses that yeah. people are excited to see. Let's like, not hear them, though. You know yeah. what I'm saying? No, I hear you. It's a bizarre choice. Speaking of bizarre choices, coming up next week on the pod, Chris. I thought we were going to keep it under wraps, but I know you've well, already- uh, Well, I thought we were starting to kind of give it away now yeah. at the end of an episode so that you can have something to look forward to. The Star Wars Holiday Special. The Star Wars Holiday Special. Starring Mark Hamill as Luke Skywalker. Harrison Ford as Han Solo. Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia. With Anthony Daniels as C-3PO. Peter Mayhew as Chewbacca. R2-D2 as R2-D2. And James Earl Jones as the voice of Darth Vader. Introducing Chewbacca's family with special guest stars. Beatrice Arthur. Art Carney, Diane Carroll, the Jefferson Starship, Harvey Corman on the Star Wars Holiday Special. Man, I've been watching a little of it. I <laughs> yeah, you couldn't wait. You know when you watch something and it's like you heard that it's batshit crazy? Yeah. And you're like, okay, is this a, you know, it's probably not going to be truly that shocking. Oh, no, this is a special <laughs> for families, right? From 1978, man, there is actually a scene in a family-oriented special where Art Carney plays virtual Wookiee porn for Chewie's dad, who kind of gets a woman off uh, in- Wait, what? Yes. I know you're searching for me. Searching, searching. I am here. My voice is for you alone. I am found in your eyes only. I exist for you. I am in your mind as you create me. Oh, yes. I can feel my creation. <laughs> I think that's a euphemism. I'm getting your message. Are you getting mine? Oh, oh. We are excited, aren't we? Well, just relax. Just no, you're thinking. You're thinking this is a porn parody of, <laughs> yeah, but the, it's not, Chris. This is something you would be sitting uncomfortably with your parents, watching a Wookiee basically have an orgasmic reaction to a female. Yeah. Who Art Carney has loaded into his virtual reality headset for Chewbacca's father to get off on. You know, I saw this as a kid. I have memories of having seen it. This scene did not make much of an impression. Really? Maybe I was at young Boy, enough age. you were age. deadened. Yeah. Really. <laughs> I was already Trust me, so it made an impression on your dad sex. and your mom. Like, yeah. <laughs> did you then have a younger well, sibling that arrived? <laughs> Nine months later. I'm getting your message. <laughs> yeah, it's the wow. first time I've heard it called that before. So that, my friends, is what you will be experiencing next week unless George Lucas's lawyers invade the full cast and crew podcasting studio. Come on, guys. You got a few. You only got a few days. <laughs> um, well, Chris, I, that's all we've got for seven. Until next week, if at first 
and second and third and fourth and as many times as you can think of, you don't succeed, try, try again. Because as Detective Somerset knows, it beats the alternative. I thought we had a chance. I did too.